You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Hopefully everybody is having a good year. Uh, summer is dang near over, and uh, this is when it starts to get really hot and heated. Uh, lots of fishing, lots of hunting uh, is going to be starting in the next couple months. And uh, I don't know about you, but I am jacked for the whitetail season. I'm a bow hunting nut, as most of you know, and we're going to be getting into bow hunting next week. Actually, we're going to be next week, we're going to be talking about the timing of the rut. But this week, I thought we'd do something a little bit different. And when I was a kid, and I tell this story a little bit in the podcast, but when I was a kid, my dad would take me and my brother up to Northeast Iowa every year, and we'd just mess around um, in the Mississippi River Valley up there. We would go to Pikes Peak, we'd go to Effigy Mounds, we would go to Backbone State Park, and we would go to Yellow River Forest, and we would just hang out up there. And it is absolutely beautiful up in that area of the state. And one place that I always loved to go was Effigy Mounds National Monument. And I found it so interesting 
to look at the mounds when I was a kid. And as you get older, you want to know more details about that. And that, my friends, is what we are talking about today. We're going to be talking with one of the curators of the Effigy Mounds National Monument. His name's Albert LeBeau. And he basically walks us through not only the history of the park, but the history of the people that made that, called that area home, right? The Native Americans that called... uh, northeast iowa home and that entire surrounding area Uh, we talk about what they did to you know for food what they did for shelter Uh, we talk about kind of what moved them out of the area and we're talking things that they were able to find you know information through not only you know research into the mounds themselves but just research into the native american history um like I said, that was in that area 2,000 years ago, up to 2,000 years ago, if not longer. So Albert walks us through a whole bunch of uh, awesome information. He drops a lot of knowledge bombs on us, and uh, I'm excited for something like this. It's almost selfish of me to do this, uh, to do a podcast like this, because I almost want to know more about it than the average Joe, probably. So this isn't your typical hunting and fishing episode. We're going to get back to that next week, but this is something that goes on in Iowa. This is a national monument that is in Northeast Iowa. And I strongly suggest that if you ever get the opportunity to go there and just learn about the culture and learn about the people and just see the mounds that are built there, I really think uh, you would find it interesting as well. Now, before we get into the podcast, we're going to be talking uh, before, what am I doing? Before we get into the podcast, we got to do a commercial, right? Our sponsor, Bondurant Custom Furniture. Um, if you haven't already, you need to go visit their website, BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Uh, these guys make really, really cool custom furniture, not only from a uh, art, art pieces as well. So they make art pieces. They make lighting fixtures. They make tables and chairs and coffee tables and, and clocks and dog beds. You name it they will make it. And one of their specialties is they take old whiskey barrels and they refurbish them and they turn that into furniture as well. So go check out their gallery on their website, bondurantcustomfurniture.com. Commercial's over. Let's get into today's podcast about Effigy Mounds National Monument. All right. I'm here with Albert LeBeau. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Good deal, good deal. Um, so here on the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, we talk a little bit about, or mostly about hunting and fishing and strategy and stuff like that, but we're going to be expanding over the next couple months to include other things that are kind of interesting in the state of Iowa as far as state parks and uh, living history and that kind of stuff. And I, as a kid would always come up to northeastern Iowa and visit Pikes Peak. We'd visit Effigy Mounds. We would, uh, you know, go wading through the creek streams by Backbone State Park and, you know, learn a little bit about the Indians that were there before us. And um, I had this idea where I was like, man, I want to learn more and share more about Effigy Mounds because I think that – that that area and, and that uh, park are is so interesting to me so that's why you're on the uh the podcast today albert um so albert lebeau uh, why don't you tell everybody about 
who you are and what your role is at Effigy Mountains National Monument. Sure. Uh, obviously, my name is Albert LeBeau, and I am the Cultural Resources Program Manager for Effigy Mountains National Monument. Um, I'm a trained archaeologist. Oh, cool. Um, I've been doing, arche- doing archaeology for about 20-plus uh, years now, I guess. Um, I've, you know, been able to do archaeology um, throughout the, the Midwest, um, Great Lakes areas, even down south and um, on the Gulf Coast. So um, I, I have, a, have had a, a pretty uh, lucky career in, in, in the sense of archaeology. Um, so is your yeah. life... Is your life anything like Indiana Jones? You know, Indiana Jones lied to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, no, it's not. (laughs) Um, I'll be honest with you, Albert. My growing up, after watching those movies, I told my dad, I said, Dad, I want to be an archaeologist when I grow up because of that movie in particular, but wanting to learn about dinosaurs and um, all that stuff. But... For, in your career as an archaeologist, have you always kind of dealt with the people that were here before us, like like the Native Americans? Yeah, um, and actually, I'm an enrolled member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in uh, South Dakota. And so, for me, the trip down, uh, the trip of, of doing archaeology is really finding about finding the, the history of my own people. Oh, cool. Uh, and that's what really triggered me into being an archaeologist. Um, there are not very many uh, Native American archaeologists in, in North America, um, but so I, I count myself as, as one of them. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, it, it really is a personal journey um, to find, you know, that history. Um you know, I still get a kick out of out of everything. Um, I'll do Fort Archaeology as well, and I, you know, and, and it doesn't matter to me whose archaeology it is or what whose history it is. Um, it's all it's always been all about the resource. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's Indian, non-Indian. You know, uh, it's important to somebody. Right. And right. and that's how um, that's how I I view the work that I do. But to start off with, it really was my personal journey to understand where my people come from. That's awesome, man. That's, it's almost like you are directly working with your family tree at that point. Pretty much. Yeah. That's awesome, man. (laughs) Um, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the area that is Northeast Iowa. Um, and then we can kind of narrow it down to the area that, um, Effigy Mounds National Monument kind of covers, uh, in the upper Mississippi river, you know, area there. What, what was the, the Indian tribe or the people there that called that area home? Well, and that's, a, and that's a valid question, and that's a question we get all the time. Um, during the time when the people were building the mounds here um, throughout northeast Iowa and south and southern Wisconsin, really, um, they never self-identified. Okay. Um, and so how, how, they, how they described themselves was the people. Um, and so they were the people. Um, and the people on the other side of the river were the other people. Okay. Um, and so there was no self-identification that, that we know of today. 
um, these people are old enough to be um, like the the founding, the, the building block of the tribes that we consult with today. Today we consult with about 20 different tribal nations. Okay. So, so between the Sac and Fox, the Ho-Chunk Nation, the Winnebago's, the Otos, the Missouri's, the Iowa, I mean, the Dakotas, I mean, you know, it, there's about 20 different tribes that we talk to today that all um, um, have have uh, um, traditions relating back to these mountains. Yeah. Okay. So r- roughly how long ago were those mounds built? About 2,000 years. I, I always say about 2,000 years Okay. 2,000 years ago. All right. So 2,000 years ago is a very long time, right? Um, yep. As far as the United States history is concerned, because yeah. there's, there's countries overseas that have been, you know, around for 2,000 years, um, different, different countries out over there. And so talk to us a little bit about what life was like for the people um, 2,000 years ago. Um, so in Northeast Iowa, you know, this area where, where Effigy Mounds is located, you know, they call it their driftless area. And the reason they call it their driftless area, or one of the reasons is because of the karst topography here and that it wasn't, um, impacted by the last glaciation. Okay. And so, um, if you think about it, you know, we look at, I look at the Driftless area as a type of refuge um, during the last ice age, where you had um, you had a wall of ice, probably a mile high, not more than forty miles away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then you didn't, and you had this valley where all the water was rushing through and creating the Mississippi, and et cetera, et cetera. Well. Where did all the animals go? You know, probably to the place where it wasn't icy and they could have food. Um, in the plants, where did the plants go? Well, probably where the place where it wasn't icy and they could grow. And so when you look at that, then you come to the, the idea of where did the humans go? Right. They follow the animals and the plants. And so in this area, you know, 2,000 years, you know, to about maybe 3,000 years ago, they were you know, in this area, hunting, fishing, um, and, and basically just trying to survive and not, you know, freeze. <laughs> right, right. And, and hoping that that wall ice would eventually go away. Okay. So were the, the natives that were there um, two, 3,000 years ago, were they uh, nomads? Did they migrate? Or were they pretty much stuck to one area uh, while everybody was there? I think they were. I think you know we're talking about a, a small, a smaller population than what's in the state of Iowa right now. Right. Um, in this area, and I think the area is large enough to where they could migrate. Um, we don't see the advent of agriculture, or at least um, you know people growing stuff, specifically growing stuff, um, till about fifteen hundred years. Okay. Ago. Um, maybe 750 years ago, um, just because, you know, I don't think the, the time was right. Um, they're still dealing with the with the cold, 
So okay, but so, yeah, so I think they're I think they're they're still roaming around and and kind of doing a hunter gatherer lifestyle. Gotcha. Okay, so with with that said, what did the 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 people that were living there at the time do for food and shelter? And just maybe if you if you could walk us through a day in the life of the people that that were living there okay um yeah sure um you know from the archaeological evidence we know that they you know they hunted a lot of deer they, they hunted a lot of deer yeah um and they even hunted some bison you know um there were some buffalo up in this area and you got to remember that you know at that time period um it doesn't you know how it looks today with the, with the hardwood with the hardwood and mixed forest um, where trees are everywhere. Um, it wasn't that way then. Um, okay. There's more of a oak savanna. Um, and so bison could, you know, actually be in this area and not, you know, run into trees every time you turn around. Right. Um, and so you had, you know, so you had people going out hunting and, and bringing back meat. Um, you had um, people going out and collecting, you know, um, nuts and berries you know, and processing those, um, processing the hides. Um, now, whether they lived in um, what they call wickiups um, or if they lived in, and sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. Um, in other cases, they lived in um, caves okay. um, and rock overhangs. And that's where we see a lot of what they ate because um, it's well preserved in, in those overhangs. So we know that they ate a lot of deer and they ate some bison and, you know, a lot of rabbit and, you know, um, squirrel and, you know, I mean, the stuff that we, we, we would eat today. You yeah. Know? Gotcha. So really not that much different from us. <laughs> yeah. So really anything that they could get their hands on that would provide them with nutrition, they were eating it. Yeah. Okay. What about, what about fishing with, with the proximity to the Mississippi river? Were these guys like avid fishermen as well? We do see fish. We do see fish. Um, fish bones and we do see um um freshwater clam and mussel okay um and so yeah they were um they were they were they were trying to find whatever they could they could find gotcha gotcha and then when it came to let's say cooler weather um how did they survive during the winter months um by drying a lot of their meat and drying a lot of their the stuff that they collect so it's kind of like the old uh um, I forget what what it was. It was like the squirrel and the frog mentality of where, you know, um, the squirrel was constantly finding things and storing things away for the winter, and the frog wasn't. And then when this got really cold, the frog came begging to the squirrel to eat. Yes. <laughs> and so these people would 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 gather enough so they could eat that day or that week or whatever, but also have enough to know that we have to have some for the harder months that are coming. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of like their daily life. Now I love, uh, native American history, uh, because I always liked this idea that, you know, and it's probably not as true, you know, 
what you read or what you watch on TV is probably blown out of proportion or over-exaggerated compa- compared to what history actually was. But did these people have to worry about threats from any other tribes in the area coming to try to steal their, you know, steal their food or steal their supplies or even even their families? We haven't seen that in, in at this time. But again, you know, we're talking about a pretty small population. So, right. you know, the chances of them knowing that there were other people over there probably wasn't great. Yeah. I mean, I think you would have um, visitors from different locations um, to help trade. Okay. Like, um, like here at Effigy Mound, we, we have... Um, copper from the Upper Peninsula. We have um, gentilian shells from the Gulf of Mexico. We have um, Knife River Flint from North Dakota. We have obsidian from Yellowstone and from um, New Mexico. Um, And so, obviously, since we're on the Mississippi River, this is the major thoroughfare. Right. (laughs) You know, it's the very first interstate. Um, And so you have a lot of commerce happening. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I don't think there was, um, you know, as later when 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 um, the push of the Europeans when they arrived and start pushing people west. Right. You're not seeing that. You're not seeing too much of that um, of that inter interpersonal conflict. Gotcha. So it was these guys other than other than your your visitor every once in a while. It wasn't like the area was a hub for activity, right? They they pretty much were isolated, stayed to themselves aside from the the random visitor that would come through. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so then you kind of mentioned it there. How did European expansion affect these guys and and ultimately I guess just kick them out of the area. Well, through <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> um, uh, through westward expansion, obviously, yeah, you know, and and the ideology of that, um, you know. So when you're talking about a, a a front, like the Western Front or the Western Frontier, right? You know, you have things that are ahead of the actual people, so like disease. Yeah. So, like, if somebody had smallpox and they contracted it uh, over in Pennsylvania or Ohio, and then they traveled over here, they would bring smallpox with them, and that would decimate villages upon villages upon villages, or the flu, or the common cold in some cases. Um, and then, so you have the decreased population already, and then you have the westward push of, of of people wanting their own land coming from, you know, England or from, you know, uh, Europe where everything was, you know, the rich people had all the land. Right. Here in America, what, what, what changed was that um, not only the rich could have land, but everybody could have land. Yeah. You know, and so that was the, that was the mentality and the push. And, and, and to justify that, they used, you know, they used, you know, uncivil means to do it, I think, yeah. <laughs> in my personal opinion. But then again, I'm biased, so. <laughs> well, it's 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 fact because history shows it. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, in you know, in they they made these people, they made you know the people, the people who who were here, they made them not people, so it made it easier for them to to remove. Yeah, so they they felt that they were a lower class of yeah. being. Yeah, so yep. they're like, well, we're we're white and we come from Europe and we're going to make the rules here now. Well, we're civilized. Yes. You know? Yes. And they didn't think that we were so they didn't think that Native Americans were civilized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I... you know, even though, you know, we got our constitution from you know, and our declaration of independence basically from, you know, um the Mohawk Confederacy. So, I mean, <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously that that effect that's a big effect, cause and effect, right? Mm-hmm. The disease comes mm-hmm. through, Western expansion comes through. At what point did the were the people like one hundred percent out of there? Um, probably nineteen sixty eight. Nineteen sixty eight. Okay. What? Why? Why is that date significant? Because I just without without even knowing would assume it would have been earlier than that. Um, I, I kind of say it with a tongue in cheek attitude too. Um, there was a lady that lived here. Her name was Emma Emma Big Bear, and she lived in the Marquette uh, McGregor area. Um, she was a Ho Chunk woman married to a, a Ho Chunk man, and they had their allotment over by Pink Rock, which is. Uh, about 10 miles as the crow flies from effigy mounds. <clears throat> it's another big promontory point in, on the Mississippi. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so when I first got here, they're very proud of Emma Big Bear. And they said the last Native American passes away, and they gave a date. I forget the, the exact day, but it was 1968. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> they're proud of the fact that the last Indian died here. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Where am I at? <laughs> yeah. But when I did the research and figured it out, I was like, oh, okay. Because she was very well loved. Yeah. Um, and so what we think is that she actually took care of the effigies here at Effigy Mountains and throughout the region. Um, because when they interviewed her, one of her last interviews, they asked her why she stayed and she said she wanted to be where her ancestors were buried. Yeah, gotcha. And so, so I say 1968. Okay. Um, but I mean, really, I think they have always. I think the like the whole chunk nation, the Winnebagos, um, the Sock and Fox, all we've had a presence here. It was just wasn't the dominant presence. Right. You know? I think somebody has always been here taking care of the mounds. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the mounds themselves then. Um, talk a little bit about the, the mound builders as a whole and the region that they covered throughout the United States. Is it just like the upper Mississippi or are mounds found other places in the United States? You know, mounds, earthen works like that are found throughout the United States. Um, what we protect and preserve here are the effigy mounds, obviously. That's what we, our park's named after. Yep. And what those are, are the the mounds in the shape of things. You know, right. in, in our case, they've been interpreted as being bears and birds. But if you go up to Baraboo, Wisconsin, you'll see the man mound. If you 
go to um, Beloit College, you'll see turtle mounds, and you know, I mean, so we're so Effigy Mountains National Monument is on the very you know, edge of the western frontier of that um, effigy built building um, sphere. Majority of it was all in Wisconsin, in um, southern Wisconsin. Okay. Um, but, you know, that being said, there's, you know, mounds being built throughout history. You know, um, you had, you know, Monk's Mound, like down at St. Louis, at Cahokia, which is a Mississippian mound, which is um, a little bit younger than what we have here. Right. Um, and there's some more conical mounds on the plains of South Dakota and North Dakota that are younger um, and they contain burials as well. They're not, they're not as big as, the, say, the conchols here at Effigy Mounds. They're, they're kind of small. Yeah. Harrison. So, I mean, and so it, it's, it, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a human thing. Right. You know, um, to, to kind of build something for a beloved when you, when you bury them. Right. And we do, we do that with monuments now with, um, you know, um, cemeteries and graveyards and things like that. Right, right. So what is the significance of a mound? Are they all in, um, do they all represent the death of somebody or do they have any other ceremonial meaning? Yes and no. Um, You know, and we don't know 100% for sure. And we we will never know, um, unfortunately. Or fortunately, it depends on how you look at it. Yeah. Um, you know, for us, and for as an archaeologist, it's always hard for me to say that. You know, yeah. like, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Um, but I can ask questions. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I can think about it and hypothesize about it. You know, and um, from what the archaeological evidence says, is that 90% of the mounds are most likely burial mounds. Okay. And so what we, how we treat the mounds here at Effigy Mounds is that we treat them all as burial or possible burial. Okay. Um, just to be on the safe side. You know, right. we don't want to be digging up somebody's ancestors. You know, if right. we have to do something. So um, we just treat them all as that way. And then as for the ceremonial part, there's probably a ceremony when they were, you know, building the mounds. And then when they would come back... There, there may have been a ceremony um, to, you know, remember, remember their dead. Um, gotcha. So kind of a, a, so kind of like a uh, a day of the dead that uh, they have in in Mexico where they have a big celebration to remember past, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um. D- did. Did these ceremonies that you know of happen all year around, or um, were it only people of certain stature that got the mounds, or did everybody get a mound? We don't know. We hypothesize that you know probably like the, in the effigies is probably somebody of, of higher stature, but within a mound there could be more than one burial. You know right. so. It could be a family, it could be a family group, it could be extended family, you know. Um, and so you got to remember one thing, too, is that um, the mounds, the mound building period lasted for about 1,500 years. So you had multiple groups of people um, evolving culture, culturally. And so you see 
and we see that through the actual mound building itself. You know, the earliest mounds are the more simpler ones, the conicals, and then the later ones are the more um, extravagant ones, like the the, the effigies. Right. And so within that 1,500 years, you're seeing that culture change and adapt to um, new ideas, um, yeah. either being brought to them or being thought of by them. Right. Um, so it's a continual, you know, evolution of culture. Okay. Kind of, t- kind of taking a backward step here and talking about the, the people themselves again, did they... Uh, have a, you know, because when I watch a movie or I or I look back in history, the, the people who stand out the most within history are, let's say, like a chief. Did, did the people have uh, a chief or um, uh, a one person that was kind of in control and made decisions or like a, a priest or something like that? Um, you know, it's hard to say, but, you know, from from reading some oral histories and, 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 you know, talking with, with tribal members, it's, it's probably a myth. Um, okay. I think a family member or a family group may have had somebody who would speak on behalf of that family or that group. Um, but, you know, um, to be called like a, a chief, probably not so much. I think it was more of, um, of a group decision gotcha. um and you know some of the ideas of like you know you know you know listening to you know they would listen to their to their priests um and and, and you know make decisions based on that are they listen to or they get together and have a discussion on whether we're going to move or or who was going to move or what was going to be moved or or things like that i think it was all kind of like a you know, a communal decision. Okay. Um, it wasn't until later where you had the, where um, you had um, the Europeans saying, we need to talk to one person. Right, right. And so then they would say, okay, this person's going to speak for us. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So uh, I'll kind of narrow it down to Effigy Mounds National Monument. What, what shapes or animals do the mounds represent there? Um, well, they've been interpreted by, by, by us, by, by the National Park Service, and by um, non-natives as birds and bears. Okay. Um, we have some information now that we're slowly getting um, from our tribal partners um, about maybe these aren't all bears. Yeah. <laughs> And so, um, what I can honestly say is that they're they're four legged animals. <laughs> right. Some of them may be bears, um, but some of them might be um, wolves, um, might be buffalo, might be you know, right. Um, you know, something other than a bear. Okay. So, you know, let's just let's say it's a four legged animal. Um, and it could be a wolf, or it could be a bison, or it could be a deer, or a bear. Um, mm-hmm. Did any of those animals have a significant meaning, maybe more meaning than another animal, to where they say, I want to honor this person by mi- building a mound of a bison, or a wolf, or a deer, uh, 
what 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 was the significance of the actual animal that led to well, I think, a mound being built in that shape? I think part of it would have been um, the fact that you know, in the later uh, in the later time, as culture was evolving, you also started getting into um, a clan system, and so you might have had like the bear clan, the wolf clan the bison clan, the deer clan, the um, snake clan, the eagle clan, you know. And so they, that could be the representation of that clan. So people of that clan would be buried in that effigy. Okay. All right, cool. So, so now, you know, time goes on. Uh, they've built these mounds, and then now people are, you know, Thousands of years later, there's this this uh, these mounds. People are coming up on them and going, "Holy cow, this is cool!" Uh, when were the mounds kind of rediscovered, or have they always kind of been in the picture at some point? I think they've always been in the picture, but you know, in the uh, late 18th century, no, 19th century, um, you had you know. Um, uh, a philanthropist hire uh, a uh, engineer, a uh, philanthropist out of Minnesota, um, and he wanted to help document all these mounds, all these shapes. Yep. And so he had the, uh, so T.H. Lewis was the engineer, and so he documented uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of mounds throughout the Midwest. Um, and so that was in the 1860s, 1850s. Okay. 1830, somewhere around. Anyway, somewhere around there. Um, and then later on, um, in the 1890s, early 1900s, you had Allison Orr, who was a local antiquarian, uh, a guy who really liked history, um, starting to, you know, looking at these mounds and actually digging into them and stuff like that. And then um, there's really Allison Orr and... Um, the following that he had were really the, the 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 people who really spurred on the the idea of of having a park here, yeah, um, a, a national park. Unfortunately, the national park idea didn't take place, but we did. We were able to get a monument. Okay, uh, which is the same thing. We're all, we're all run by the National Park Service, but there's a little bit different way of how. Uh, a national park versus a monument can be designated. Right. Uh, a park is done by the Act of Congress, and a monument is done by um, presidential declaration. So. Gotcha. Okay. And I want I want to get into all that here in a second, but you mentioned that there was this guy who came in and he started digging into the mounds. Um, what What are some of the things that that these people found, like these other archaeologists or people who were uncovering these mounds, what did they find within them? Um, they found burial goods. You know, they found the stuff, like I mentioned before, you know, dentillion shells and, um, you know, obsidian projectile points, uh, copper breastplates, um, things that, you know, things that that would be, um, nice to have are the, the nicer things. Like if you know, I, I buried my grandma a few years ago, um, and you know, I put her um, her favorite earrings on her 
you know, and their diamond earrings. Had they happened to be diamond earrings, yeah. and I put them on her, you know. Um, and so those are, you know, her favorite earrings, you know. And so stuff like, you know, so it's not much different than what we do now. So really the nice stuff that they, that they, that their people, their descendants would think that they would, they would want in, that, in an afterlife if there was an afterlife. Gotcha. So like, like Christianity, right? Uh, Christians believe that there's a heaven and that, you know, if you're good throughout your life, you can go to this heaven. Um, what was the afterlife or did they have a a thought of afterlife, uh, that these, that they would go to after they died? I don't know that for, I mean, I don't know, but, um, you know, with the stuff that they they buried with them, it would almost seem that they would. Okay. Because you had you had the the really cool things, you know, the ceremonial blades and you know things that you wouldn't be able to use to like, hunt with. <laughs> as soon as they would snap, as soon as you hit something remotely soft. <laughs> but then you also had utilitarian stuff like you know little bitty pots and and you know. Little, little containers that were that were totally you know, to, to, yeah, you, you, everybody used them daily. Used yeah, them. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. Okay. Um, being buried with your favorite coffee mug, you know. Yeah, they, they had stuff like that. Okay, you know. So it, it was it was kind of a, you know we we think they probably believe in the afterlife, but we don't know. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you mentioned something about, uh, before we started recording, something that had to do with the Munson. Uh, what was that? What was that called? Um, we call it the Munson. I call it the Munson debacle. But the Munson debacle. Describe what that was. Um, so in, in, in the, so the park was established in 1949. Okay. And throughout in the 1940s up until about 1970, 75, 76, there were ongoing excavations of the mounds. Um, and so um, artifacts, human remains were being removed from the mounds and being placed into um, the collection and are put on display in our museum. Um, and so in 1989, um, a new law was being, getting ready to be passed in, in Congress and that was the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, um, and which basically said that you know, as a as a country, we we kind of messed up. You know, we shouldn't have been grave robbing. Yeah. Because we wouldn't stand that. We wouldn't stand for that if somebody did it to our graves. So why did why did we do it to these people's graves? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so part of that was. If there were artifacts associated with human remains, the, the human remains and the artifacts had to go back. Um, and so what Munson ended up doing, Thomas Munson, he was a superintendent at the time of the park, and um, he basically removed the people from the stuff. He put more credence on the artifacts than he did on the human remains. And so he, with the help of another individual, um, packed up, you know, 42 individuals and put them in two boxes and carried them up to his car and drove them across the river to Prairie du Chien, which they stayed in his garage for about 21 years. Oh, boy. Um, he basically stole 42 people 
and kept them in his garage. Uh, um, and that's weeks. human remains? Human remains. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, and you didn't think anything of it. And for 20, 20 years, um, he actively lied about it. Him and his, his co-conspirator actively lied about it. Wow. Um, and, and sent people who were looking for him on wild goose chases and feeding him red herrings. And um, it wasn't until... Um, 2016. Actually, it wasn't until 2011 when we recovered all the remains back from him. Okay. Um, and it wasn't until 2016 when we finally got him. Um, we got him down into a into um, a, a plea agreement. Um, we, we ended up taking him. We ended up putting charges against him and and um, going after him. And, and he, did they? He, he out. Did they successfully recover everything that he had stole? Then, yes. Okay, that's something I didn't yeah. know. That's crazy, man. It is. That's yeah, crazy. Is. So you got the stuff back. Um, so then, did you guys end up putting all the remains back into? I know it would probably just have been a guessing game, but did you guys put the remains and the artifacts back in the mounds at that point? Not in the mounds, um, obviously, because then, you know, what happens if we get more remains when we're right. doing that? So, right, um, we're and, and currently, we're still working with the repatriation aspect of it. Um, and so we're working with our tribal partners to come up with, you know, the plan on how to respectfully replace the, you know, put these people back to where, at least close to where they came from. Right. Right. Um, and so um, we're working with them on that. We just we just did um, our first um, phase. Um, we have phase one approach. We have we have a phase approach of repatriation. Um, and so what that means is basically different phases. We're going to be you know returning people as as we go along. Problem with that is the law is written so wonky that we have to document, be able to document a whole lot of different things, and there's no documentation kept here. Uh, the co-conspirator worked at the at the park up until I got here in 2013. Oh wow! Um, the day I got the day I, the the week I got here, the week previous was that person's last day. She was uh, removed. She was fired. That is crazy. So it's so, just man, that's documentation. Nuts. Yeah, the documentation isn't there, so that's part of the reason it's taking us so long to repatriate. Um, but we just got our first phase done. Um, we're working with our travel partners, um, and um, you know, within the next five years, we should have everything reburied. Okay, so are they going to be reburied in new mounds, or are they going to be reburied in old mounds? Um, not be buried in mounds at all. Okay, um, and we don't know where. Um, that's that's the other thing about it is that as soon as we do our paperwork, um, if they want to rebury them in the park, they can. But ultimately, as soon as the paperwork's done, um, they can take them back to, like, uh, if Ho-Chunk Nation decides to be the, the lead um, tribe, they can take them back to Black River Falls. Okay. You know, it, you know and do whatever they want to do. I mean, rebury them there, um, or, you know, or, or they might ask us to rebury in the park, and if they do that, we won't put them back in a mound, we'll, we'll, we'll 
set a place for them where they can be reburied, but it won't be we won't be we won't be creating mounds or are disturbing any any of the existing mounds to gotcha. do that. Okay. All right, so um, that's, a, that's a very interesting story. So 1949 is when the actual park was, or the, the area was established. Was there much of a, a visitor presence at that point like there is today? Yeah, there, there is. Um, I mean, you know, having a national park here, or a national park unit here, um, you know, I think every kid in a 30-mile radius or maybe even 50-mile radius of refugee mounds, every fourth grader has been here, <laughs> you know, through right. since probably 1949. You know, yeah. I mean, um, you know, so, you know, we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of local history. You know, I always hear from people like, Oh, I haven't been here since third grade, and I'm bringing my 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 grand my you know my grandchildren. Yeah, you know, so we're seeing a generational, you know, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, like I said at the beginning of the show, me and my brother came up to Northeast Iowa at least once a year, and we stopped at Effigy Mountain Park absolutely every single year, and hiked the trails and looked at the at the visitor center and all that stuff, and had an absolute blast. So, um, was there a visitor center right away and a parking space right away, or did that come later down the road? It evolved. Um, you know, when the park was first established, this was actually a, the, where we're at now, and, and the visitor center compound was what we call it. Um, there was a it was a farm, right? And so the first superintendent lived in a farm. There was no running water, um, no electricity. Um, you know, they lived here like that for probably the first couple of years while they're establishing trails and things like that. Right. Um, and so the first, very first visitor center was actually the old farmhouse. Or actually, no, it wasn't that. It was actually the chicken coop. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, that was the visitor That was the visitor center. It was the chicken coop for the first couple of years. Wow. Um, and then um, in about 1950, about 1960, um, the Park Service had this um, Mission 66 where they were going to develop parks, and, and, and they asked Congress for money, and they were able to get it. And so, so the Mission 66 is what established the compound that you see today. That when you visit here, you know, um, the visitor center, the the um, and the L buildings. Okay. Um, and. So yeah, so by sixty sixty seven everything was built, um, and then the modern day visitor center that you see today is different, probably from the one that you remember from your childhood. Um, and but it's the same. It's the same building. It just has a different cover on it. Yeah. <laughs> and we we did some changes to the to the interior, but you know um, we just put a different facade on it. Okay. Um... So then the buildings were there. Uh, were the trails, the hiking trails, established at that point as well, or was it just, hey, walk up this hill and go check them out? Um, the, the first, in, in 49 through about 52, um, the superintendent um, hired local, actually hired a local farmer to come in and blade some trails. 
Okay. And so, for the most part, the trails haven't changed <laughs> since, you know, 1950s. Right. Um, when we established the actual visitor center, we had to establish the bridge across the, the wash and then establish that trail. But, you know, for the most part, that trail is already established. So, right. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, they haven't really changed since 1950. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, first thing, this is kind of going back to that, that Indiana Jones pipe dream. You know, there's always some bad guy trying to steal the artifact that Indiana Jones has to go and steal it back from that guy or or go get it before, before the bad guy gets it. Was there any documentation or reports throughout the years of grave robbing or people going in and destroying the mounds to try to get the valuables that were inside of them? Yeah, there are. Um, you know, we see we, we there's evidence. Um, you know, there's evidence in the yeah. mounds um, that things are happening. People are were, were actively digging into them. Um, but surprisingly, um, we haven't had any of that within the past twenty years. Right. Uh, I say surprisingly because. Um, other parts of the country have seen, uh, uh, you know, with the advent of, of, of meth use, um, places of archaeological significance being hit hard. Okay. And unfortunately, in Northeast Iowa, we do have a, a meth problem. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, we haven't, you know, we, and we washed them out, you know, like a hawk. You right. know, if, if there's a tree branch on them, we know about it, you know. Yeah. And so we, you know, so that's, so that's the other part of it. But the other part of it is our visitors. You know, our visitors take ownership of of their park, which they should. This is their park. Yep. And I work, I work for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't work for the government. I work for them. You know, and it's their park. It's their resources. Right. Because so. at the end of the day, this is this is public property. Yeah. 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 All right. I'm, so. I'm yeah. So, what? what is the maintenance that has to go into this? Because I just would feel that over thousands of years with rain and storms and erosion, that these mounds would eventually disintegrate into nothing. And you're right. Um, and surprisingly, you know, unfortunately they haven't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, you know, our maintenance, you know, it's, it's always evolving. You know, um, I remember our former law enforcement. He was a, he was a local person uh, from Wakan area, and when he would come to the mounds, you know, they'd be freshly mowed every week, and you know, it looked like a looked like a golf course up there. Yeah. Um, well, we found out that wasn't the best way to take care of the mounds because it was compacting them a little bit because they're using riding lawnmowers. Yep. Um, and so when I got here. We weren't mowing the mounds, which wasn't a good idea either because then we were getting invasive species on the mounds, which was causing, you know, damage. And so, you know, through work with our tribal partners and and figuring out the best strategies, um, we've come to what we're doing now. And that's, you know, very limited maintenance. But we're also trying to open up the the canopy um, and remove some of the trees. So if you come here, you're going to see 
tree removal. Um, there's going to be trees missing from where when you remember them being there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's because we're opening up the canopy and letting nature kind of take, you know, run its course and and protect the mountains itself. The other thing that they used to use that we don't use right now is fire. Um, prescribed burning. Yeah. You know, um, that really helps the mounds. Um, okay. And eventually we'll get there, but um, right now we all have, we have to do it mechanically. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So from a the the national monument itself, and let's say like your job and the rest of the people that work at the at the monument. Is all that funded by a budget through the, the United States government? Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. So um, we do have you know we we have um, some donations that we that visitor um, you know feels like they want to you know help us out a little bit they can I um, mean we use that for you know interpretation and for you know like junior ranger badges and junior ranger books and things like that you know. Um, doesn't go towards any of our salaries. All of our salaries, for the most part, come from um, our operating funds. Yeah. Okay. So, does a, like would it be possible for this monument to exist without donations? It would, but it'd be hard. Okay. Right. Um, you know, we wouldn't have. You know, we're going through right now. We're going through a, a change in our visitor center. Um, we're changing our our interpretation plan. Okay. Um, and so, um, so you're seeing a lot of a change on there right now, and, and it's a good change. And so, um, without some of that donation money, we wouldn't be able to make some of those changes. Right. So. Right. So there's a big there's it, it's funded through the government, but there's also a portion that ha, that has uh, some good donations coming in as well. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's great. Uh, so, so is there any uh, fun things that you guys do there to bring people in? Uh, like, do you guys do uh, guided tours, or do you have programs that people can stop by and? and learn a little bit more detail as opposed to just stopping by and walking the trails? We do. Um, during the, the summer season from Memorial Day to, I believe, I don't know if we're going to go to the end of October or not. I'd have to look. But um, we do have our guided tours. Um, we do um, two tours a day, uh, 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, I believe. Um, and they go do the Fire Point Loop, um, and it's, you know, it's, uh, you get to see some of the effigy mounds. You see, you get to see all four types of mounds that we have in the park, and then you also get to see some beautiful overlooks of the Mississippi River. Yeah, um, amazing overlooks. Um, yeah. And um, we have some evening programming that we do. Um, the Rangers will do an evening talk. I think they're on Tuesdays and Sundays at seven. Um, and, and, and everything you can find is on our Facebook page, um, and it's just, just uh, you know Facebook Effigy Mounds. So, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and, and, and we keep that up a little bit more up to date than we do our, our webpage, right? Because <laughs> it's easier to do. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I hate to, hate to admit it, but it is easier to do. <laughs> no, makes um, sense. But yeah, our Facebook page is you know we you know like tonight we're having a, a gala. Um, we we have some of our tribal partners. 
um, showing um, contemporary Native American art in our visitor center now. Um, and so we're having an opening on that tonight and then tomorrow and then throughout the weekend we're having, you know, you know the artists are the artists are going to be around and things like that. So it's kind of cool. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So it's it's a lot more than just a building full of artifacts. It, it sounds like there's an active, uh, you guys are actively taking part in, you know, the history and tradition and getting others involved in it. Yeah. Awesome. So and we and, have a really great ranger staff and they're really knowledgeable. So awesome. So any, anything else cool, interesting information about the people or the park or the mounds themselves uh, that you'd like to share with us? You know, to really get a feeling for, for this park, you know, I can, I can sit here and tell you, you know, you know, the archaeology, the history, you know, interpretive programming, you know, maintenance, and, but to really get a feel for the park, you have to have boots on the ground. Yep. Um, this park is a sacred place, and it's not just sacred to Native Americans. Um, this park has does something to you, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the water. I don't know if it's the air. I don't. I don't know what it is. But when you leave this place, you're like, "Wow, that was a really cool place." Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and it's like you make a personal connection to it. Um, I've been to other, I've worked at other national parks. I've been to other national parks and, um, effigy mounds is one of maybe three that have ever made me feel that way. Yeah. I I feel very fortunate to work here. Yeah. I agree 100%. And here's my take on it. Let's say you go to a national park somewhere else and it's just geo, you know, uh, geography like a mountain or a shape in the in the stone or whatever but here it's something man-made that's thousands of years old and it makes it starts to make me think whenever i'm there not just about how beautiful it is there and you know you go to one of those overlooks of the mississippi river and you can see wisconsin and and the you know the river leading into it and all the little islands and and just this perfect view but you walk away with this new mindset about the people that were here before you and it just gets your brain running in a different direction if that makes sense and for me it's it's just one it's just like oh my i don't know i get jacked up every time i go because i'm a huge fan of um how things were built and i mean that by like how this country came into existence, um, the people that were here before it, um, and even as far back as humans crossing the land bridge from Asia into what is now North America, thus starting the Native Americans that we know today. And just that whole, it just opens your brain up. Yeah. You know, it's amazing to think that they built these, these you know, you look at Great Bear, for example, and she's 120 some feet, or 140 some feet across, and they did it with baskets and and, and clamshells. Yeah, and that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. They didn't, they didn't have an excavator. <laughs> no, nope, nope. And the other thing is that I always think about too is okay. 
northeast Iowa, especially in that drift driftless area, the terrain is very steep. And these people were navigating it on a daily basis. So without any type of motorized vehicle, without any, I don't know if they, did they use horses? Did they have horses? Nope. So these guys were on their feet all day long surviving. And we complain about when it's too hot or it's too cold outside. These guys were outside 365 days a year, right? And it just makes you feel you're not as tough as you think you are. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yep. (laughs) So, so... Well, I tell you what, Albert, man, this has been a, an awesome conversation. Um, I think you've kind of already mentioned it, but I'll let you say, uh, you know, have the final word here. If, if someone wants to find out more about Effigy Mounds or, you know, get some more information or come visit, where do we send them? Um, you know, we have our Facebook page. You know, just, you know, you search for Effigy Mounds National Monument. It will pop right up. And then we have our website, which is um, at NPS, excuse me, www.nps.gov slash E-F-M-O. All right. And that will take you right to our webpage. Cool. And I don't think we've necessarily specifically mentioned it. Where is the park physically located? Oh, yeah. It's uh, three, mile, three miles north of Marquette, Iowa. Perfect. Right, right. All right. Well, again... Albert, really appreciate your time. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for the information. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. No problem. Anytime.